You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everyone, this is Annie with you on Solidarity Breakfast. I hope you're doing well. Today we hear from a new coalition calling for living incomes for everyone. They will be launching their national campaign to retain the job seeker payment and much, much more after the COVID crisis has receded. We follow up with a chat with filmmaker Judith Ehrlich about her film The Boys That Said No, about to be screened at the upcoming Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. We hear from our friends in East Gippsland with a sixth dispatch from the east of the state. Kevin Healy takes us through the week and we finish with a chat with Noah Priscill about the significance of toppling statues of people who represent past and present oppression. But first... An important station message. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions. And we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR, your community radio station. Janet Birdstall and Eileen Daly spoke to me about the new coalition that has been formed to press the issue of inequality in Australia with a series of demands around a living income for everyone. The name of the national coalition that we're part of is called Living Incomes for Everyone. Uh, The acronym is LIFE. Um, and it, it's a, an initiative that came out of a discussion with, between various of the, the sort of groups that are operating in the unemployed area, uh, in social security generally, that's all the other payments, age pension, the carer's pension, the DSP, student, Oz study and AB study and so forth. I'm actually from Anti-Poverty Network South Australia. We've been uh, advocating for or six years, um, we've been campaigning really, really hard to get the rate of New Start, then New Start, raised. Um, and we've formed various links with different groups over the years that are operating in similar ways to us, grassroots groups um, throughout the country. But we'd never formally come together. 
and we'd never formally come together particularly with grassroots unionists, with, with the trade union movement, and it was a kind of gap. Um, because obviously there's a link. <laughs> there's a link on an income uh, basis of the, the payment, the unemployment payments and all the other payments and the minimum wage and so further up the sort of wage ladder. Um, so it, it ha has been going for about five weeks. We've, start, we've been organising for about five weeks and it's really taken off at a rate of knots quite phenomenally the amount of different groups who've joined up to the coalition or the national campaign, whatever you want to call it. We came fairly quickly to a set of demands that everybody agreed on. Really the big impetus was, um, it, it is expressed in the first demand, which is keep the rate. The doubling of Newstart with the job seeker supplement to 550 a week instead of 550 a fortnight. Um, and, the, and that is slated to end you know the Morrison announced fairly near the beginning there would be a snap back in September uh, like we had something in our hands to defend uh, whereas before it had always been trying to get against so much opposition at the level of government without any um, explanation for the refusal to raise about $40 a day the unemployment benefit to have got double that amount in, in people's pockets people being able to actually uh, live without daily stress was something to hold on to. And that, that's what spurred everybody to get together. So that's our, our first demand, keep the rate, um, as opposed to the old campaign demand had been raise the rate. And now the Unemployed Workers Union, Anti-Poverty Networks, National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children and so on, all together trying to um, hold on to this new rate. And then we supplemented it with other demands, other needs that weren't being met. That was a really solid starting point for us. Uh, so along with uh, keeping the current rate of job seeker, which I, I just want to point out to your listeners, is only $10 a week above the Henderson poverty line. So we're not talking about a king's ransom here. People will still be in hardship on $550 a week. Just to give an indication, uh, Anglicare does a... a a housing snapshot every year and their recent one for that that involves this double double rate is that 1.5 amount of houses around Australia are, will be available to people on that rate it used to be less than one percent it's now 1.5 percent so it's still it, it, it's not in any way an overly generous payment it actually brings us into line around about average with all the other OECD unemployment benefits. That's how far we've been behind for 26 years, no raise whatsoever. It's about driving wages downward. We, are, we have been long aware that that's our function when we're unemployed. And, and so it's absolutely crucial that the union movement gets behind these claims for job seeker. But the second part of that demand is about job keeper, because of course, you know, for this length of time, only a matter of a couple of months, there's 3 million people on JobKeeper uh, allowance, which is also going to be snapped back. And we're pretty clear that the Morrison government is intending for all of the people currently on that payment who will lose their jobs, and it will be a tremendous amount of them, will go back to JobSeeker. Uh, so we're also demanding that we keep the JobKeeper rate at the level that it is, and 
that it's added to all the people who missed out, masses and masses of workers who, who didn't even get it, that have fallen through the gaps. But another important component to that is that the JobKeeper allowance went to employers to do what they like with. That is being rorted all over the place. Um, Frydenberg recently said that if employers, you know, accidentally on purpose um, claim JobKeeper, for their workers, um, they could erroneously, they could claw it back from the very people that they've used as a, um, a means to get public money into private businesses. So that means that a lot of people on JobKeeper, if that happens, will be hit with enormous levels of debt because they're going to have to pay it back. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. And the other, the other element that uh, has uh, gone under the radar uh, has been the fact that uh, it's a set rate and uh, very skilled people are, are being asked to do menial tasks uh, to fulfil a low rate of hours, uh, pay in hours. It, it, I mean, like, for example, it's very well described, but people like the uh, symphony orchestra musicians were being asked to be telemarketers, yeah. right? Uh, things like that. So that there's a, a very kind of um, undermining of uh, payment for skills. Yeah. There's a lot of anecdotes along, along those lines, including um, things like um, uh, one uh, person that I know actually well uh, was told by their boss that they had to clean his house. <laughs> you mean nothing to do with his work? Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of really very, very dodgy things going on there. So our demand is about JobKeeper being paid directly to workers, which is what it should have been in the first place. Uh, JobKeeper is actually practically the same as the minimum wage. That's um, right. That's exactly uh, correct. And, uh, I mean, you, you're right about the, absolutely right about the relationship between the minimum wage and unemployment benefits. And I went through the um, taper tables for uh, when unemployment benefit cuts out how much people, extra people can earn. Mm. And it, it varies depending on whether you're single without a kid or a couple with children or whatever. But it, it's... Once you work about somewhere between about 28 and 31 hours a week um, at the minimum wage, you're not in, uh, you, you run out. So that's sort of in effect what the government is saying is, is a, they expect people to be actually be able to survive on less even than a full-time income. And, and so un underemployment is a huge problem that goes on alongside because there is so much part-time and casual work in Australia that even the minimum wage itself isn't actually a minimum, um, and the fifteen hundred dollars for JobKeeper does it. If if people are paid it, at least it's getting them the minimum weekly wage equivalent, which anybody who's working less than full time ordinarily isn't getting. But employers have sacked a lot of people before giving them JobKeeper as well, because um, it was meant to be an all-in or none-in. So it was an incentive to a lot of employers to actually sack their uh, casual and part-time workers because they would have to be paying them $1,500, which is like a full-time minimum wage. And uh, it, it made more sense for them to terminate a lot of people before they even took on 
JobKeeper. So it's sort of called JobKeeper, but it's actually JobSacker in a lot of cases. <laughs> so it really, although although JobKeeper and JobSeeker looked sort of like they were meeting people's needs, um, as they've actually turned out, they're not. Job seeker is doing a better job of meeting people's needs than job keeper is. You know, one of the things that governments do so, so well is this whole divide and rule. So, I mean, they do it amongst, uh, between unemployed workers and um, uh, people that are minimally employed or on minimum wage. There's that split. Then there's the split between all the different payments. So just as a snapshot of what's really going on, We've got nearly 1.7 million people on Job Seeker at the moment, 3 million people on Job Keeper, most of whom will not be getting their jobs back in a hurry. So they're going to be on Job Seeker. But then on top of that, you've got this whole area of hidden unemployed people that have actually dropped out of the labour force altogether. And those figures are up near 700,000 people. It's gobsmacking the level of poverty when you add those people together with all the people who are struggling under any kind of poverty line on the age pension, on the disability support pension, on carers, students, um, and, and so forth, you've got levels of poverty in Australia that we're about to face is 30% and more of the population. I mean, it really isn't hyperbole to say that we're at depression levels of poverty, that that's where we're heading in a very, very short period of time. Apart from dealing with JobKeeper and JobSeeker, we're sort of anticipating possible attempts to make changes to the income support system on the back of supposedly a small increase in the unemployment benefit. We're particularly worried about extension of harassment of the unemployed, lack of dignity and uh, extension of uh, cashless welfare. So we're also demanding social security with dignity and end of harassment and arguing to not leave anybody behind. So all those groups, the fact that casuals have been excluded, um, that uh, people on temporary visas have been excluded from support demands that go with apart from keeping the rate are um, no one left behind and end harassment, social security with dignity. Income management is something that's well and truly on their agenda. They want it and they want it for everyone. And, and there's been um, whistleblowers uh, from the Department of Human Services who have said that that includes the age pension. So that's they wouldn't get that at once. That'll be rolled out over time if, they, if we don't stop it, which we're aiming to do. That's definitely on their wish list. And it's very, very possible that with this announced raise that they're going to give JobSeeker will come a whole lot of strings attached, income management being one of them. But it, then the other aspect to the whole harassment situation is, of course, job providers privatised, you know, even the not-for-profits have a business model. They're there solely and, and, and simply to police people and their lives and have made people's lives an absolute misery over the years and continue... Well, at the moment, they're in hiatus, but we've had many, many reports of people who are still getting harassed by their job providers because, of course, every time that they make contact with you, they take... Um, money from the government purse, from the public purse. Um, so there's that. And also within that category of those demands is an, an end to all robo-debts. I mean, people will be aware robo-debts 
was amongst one of the most scurrilous things that, that this government has done. It's, it's caused people to commit suicide. It's caused them enormous mental health problems because they were hit with sometimes up to $16,000, $18,000, even a $3,000 debt to somebody who's living in poverty is completely amoral. So at the moment, there's a class action in, in, uh, in place for that. But the government has by no means eradicated those debts. They can come back at any time. They can change the algorithm. What's been proven to be illegal is the way that they calculated people's income over the course of a year. So they can't do that again, but there's lots and lots of other ways that they could bring those debts back. And they've significantly said they haven't waived them, they've zeroed them. I think the big difference now is, is the number of people who are going to be affected directly by poverty who are taking a cut in their standard of living, whose livelihoods are now much more insecure than they ever thought they were. Um, as Arling said, there's 1.7 million people on JobSeeker and over 3 million on JobKeeper. And at that proportion of the workforce, even if, even if um, it's not the entire 5 million end up unemployed, it, unemployment is going to be at such a level that hardly anybody except the richest are going to not know somebody who's directly affected. We're not trying to influence people whose hearts are in the right place. We're trying to organise the people whose needs are not being met to stand up for themselves. And I think one of the reasons why the government actually doubled Job Seeker was because they knew that that many millions of people would not, would not sit down and accept living on $40 a day. And not only that, it would actually send the whole economy into a spin because you would then have defaults on mortgages and rents and an entire financial instability that they wouldn't be able to manage. We're specifically building ourselves on the basis of organisations joining our campaign who represent the people who are affected because it's through being organised together in solidarity with people who are in the same position as themselves that people will uh, have more confidence to act and they'll be able to tap into networks that are already organised because there's an awful lot of people out there who've never been organised in any way, shape or form as unions have shrunk. And mm -hmm. un unions haven't really contested the minimum wage with anything other than submissions at the National Wage Case and a few press releases. But we hope this is actually going to get people out taking the kind of action that governments and employers can't ignore. And we mm. think this campaign has the potential to do that. Yeah, I just, just to add to that, completely agree with what Janet's saying. We're not a lobbying or a, an advocacy group. We're really about building a groundswell. We're about building a movement. But I just wanted to say something about um, the wider community, because actually in Anti-Poverty Network, We've long known that most of the community, the wider community, is on our side in regards to a, a raise. The, the, the polls are really, really clear. 72% of Australians agree that, 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 well, the old new start, this was before it all happened, um, should be raised. Recently, there was another poll that came out saying, well, what about keeping it at the rate that it's at, $1,100? 59% of Australians believe that it should be kept where it is. So we've actually got a majority view. <laughs> I mean, it's not our focus, but it's definitely, um, there is 
enormous support for it out there in the broader community. The endorsements are coming really, really fast and thick for our demands from all sorts of walks of life, not just the, you know, the groups that we've got involved at the moment, which are quite vast, uh, you know, across lots and lots of different community groups and union groups and so forth. Most of the regional TLCs in the eastern border are on side. Um, it, but also now, you know, we're starting to, it's starting to be known what we're trying to do. And today we got a whole pile of endorsements from different migrant groups, um, uh, from different of the progressive churches and so forth. So we're just going to keep going. We know it'll build. Um, and then what are we building towards? Well, we've got a, a, a campaign strategy kind of mapped out for the year. But the first thing that we need to do is really have a launch where we introduce the campaign to the wider public. And we'll be doing that in July around the, uh, just before, prior to the mini budget that the government's bringing down where they're gonna tell us what they're gonna do with Job Seeker and Job Keeper. Um, so on the 21st of July, we'll be having a launch of the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign. Uh, then we'll follow that with as much of a media blitz as we possibly can then we'll hear what the government's got to say then we'll respond doesn't stop with a raise to job seeker even if we get anywhere near um, what is a livable wage we're just going to keep going until there's nobody in this country that's living in in poverty or anywhere close to it and where they have some kind of a future themselves and their kids it's very interesting how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect a capitalist framework when it's not working. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference. And people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. Let's spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. My hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build a more people-centred and focused future. And, you know, that comes down to us. It comes down to the 3CR listeners, the, the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists. It comes down to everybody that makes a difference and puts in. We need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate... Go to 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival starts on June the 30th and runs to July the 15th. It's a virtual festival this year because of COVID, but it doesn't stop it having an impressive array of local and international films on show. I spoke to Judith Ehrlich about her film, The Boys That Said No, and I thought you might just find it interesting. It lays out the resistance movement behind the draft resistors movement in America during the Vietnam War. There are plenty of lessons to learn from this activist experience. If you get a chance, catch the film. This is my chat with Judith. I thoroughly enjoyed your film, uh, The Boys That Said No. I was so impressed with the level of archival footage that you used to create the story. It was just fabulous. Where did you get all that footage? It must have taken you so much time. It did. That's that's really what it's so um the challenge of making this kind of film and the reason it's like people laugh and say it took seven years to make it, but it actually took seven years to find all that footage. 
um, and also to raise the money for the film. But, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, did you see the credit roll? I'm going to go under five minutes with archival sources. And we dug very deep. I mean, the, the, I, I, had, I had made um, two other films on related subjects, so I sort of knew where the bones were buried for most of the, the um, especially like the National Archives in the U.S. and um, the major archives that have, the, the network archives have had a lot of it. Um, but I also, I had uh, the editor and I here, I think, you know, the last time I made an archival film, you had to actually write to the archival company. They would send you a VHS reel with time code on it, and then you would order the final material. Now you go online and can find a whole lot of this was online. Um, but then at the end, you've got a, a very long process of figuring out how to get the rights to use it. So it, it was interesting. It was a very different process this time. Things that were much, much more accessible to find them, but then being using, you know, properly clearing rights to use them was a much more difficult process. So that took us many months. And there are 1,400 bits of archival in that film, or cuts, which include the interviews, but most of it's archival. So there's an enormous amount of material in it. You know, things like the, the footage, for example, um, the uh, moment when Joan, but when Martin Luther King comes to Santa Rita prison to, um, to support Joan Baez, who's in jail for the um, for stop the draft week, having been arrested for 40 days. They were in jail that time because it was their second arrest. And um, he comes and I, I saw in the footage I had that there was a lot of camera people there, but I couldn't find any other footage. And the material I had wasn't really good enough. So in the end, we finally found it in Amsterdam in some obscure archive, and I still don't know how my archivist found it. But I did. I did have a full-time archivist the last six months, um, who was just digging, um, and and she had a lot of sources. So we we did look all over the world for material and found pretty much enough to tell the story. And I, I think, and to, yes, enough to tell the story. And um, there were a lot of independent films at the time. We drew from I think seven independent films that were made on the subject of the time. And then, of course, in lots of uh, network um, you know, material, the, the Ken Burns, Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera, lots of other films that have been made about the subject, for the, especially the, um, the combat footage came from lots of networks. Just for listeners, uh, the story that you're telling is actually the story of the uh, people who were resisting the draft to Vietnam in America. So it really yeah. begins in 67 and ends in 73. It, it's, it's a playbook for resistance, isn't it, this film? It is. And it's uh, what's really interesting because I'm, you know, um, my, my partner's daughter's out um, organizing protests here in, in Brisbane for, to protect them. Um, refugees who are being deported and my sons in Brooklyn right with 10,000 bicyclists riding blocking the streets all the way down through I sent me pictures of Times Square from a couple of days ago with, with 10,000 bicycles um, you know closing traffic and I, I it seems to me that um, the timing for this is kind of uncanny I mean it's uh, been almost since that period that there's been this much ongoing sustained protests 
in the U.S. and in the world, I, I hope and think that's going to keep going on. And it's, um, but the playbook, as you said, which is a great description of it, I, I've been thinking template, but I like playbook better. It's, um, you know, that we learned from, uh, we learned from the civil rights movement, which is something that I think the, um, when I started this film, I really didn't realize how much this was the story of the legacy of the civil rights movement as much as it is the legacy, you know, the story of the anti-draft movement and the anti-war movement and a very loud crow. Um, but it's sort of, it's um, the, the civil rights movement, uh, which precedes this movement by about a decade, but the players are very much the same. So Martin Luther King and plays a very significant role in this story as does, um, um, Muhammad Ali and one of our characters, Cleveland Sellers, is a, a, a young man who's arrested for and thrown in jail at 14 for um, uh, being part of a, a protest in in, uh, in, South, in South Carolina, and he goes on and is a leader in SNCC, Southern the um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which really has incorporated all these techniques of nonviolence that we learned from Gandhi and Thoreau and and here it's adapted by the civil rights movement and then passed on to the to the anti-war movement and the anti-draft movement and now I see these same techniques being used really well in the movements that are happening right now and um, it's all part of a legacy of standing on each other's shoulders with the Techniques of nonviolence, which you know really instruct all of these movements. One one of the things that's so fascinating about your film is its steady hand on the tiller. You go from uh, to each of the pivot points of uh, different people's realizations and movement into resistance. It's it's really quite compelling. There's pivot points, so. For example, uh, Stogie uh, Carmichael's sneak. That you you put that into perspective for me. I, I uh, now understand. In the past, mostly people describe it from the point of view of white youngsters going down and being politicised. But it doesn't. They don't actually put it into the context of the black movement where it actually belongs. Yeah, and I didn't get that when I started this film. I mean, it really was something that I think is sort of, I don't think that's been introduced very clearly to the public, um, that these, that the anti-war movement, that the leadership of the movement, of the anti-draft movement had all gone south and into the 1964 um, voter registration movement and mostly in Mississippi, but throughout the south. And it was a big, there was a big effort to get white northerners to go down and actually understand what was going on in the south and also to defend the um, activists in the south and be their allies which is interesting because that's sort of where we're moving now it's like you know that that the idea of um white activists being asked to step up and be allies to their african-american and and other um Groups, you know, uh, that are our brethren and these other movements that we really need to to be more active and not just stand by and say, yeah, great, right on, but to you know get in there and help. And one of the things that was really important in some of the interviews from the people who went was the connection that they made 
to an individual standing up and what that actually meant, you know, how an individual can actually have an effect. Exactly. And, you know, the film I made before this, The good, the Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, um, which got nominated for an Oscar, which was nice. But um, it, uh, the thing that I learned from that film was that it really, Dan knew he had, a, he had, he was a war planner. He had the secrets. He had written the, he had written the Pentagon Papers. He knew what they were, um, or was one of the people who wrote them. He was inspired by one of these war resistors, Randy Taylor, who was willing to go to prison to try to stop the war, who didn't have much power. But Dan knew he had power, and if he stood up, if he released the information he had, he could really make a big difference, which he did. And the Pentagon Papers were made a massive difference. But it's, again, another example of how people, individuals with in, with courage and with conviction really influence other individuals. And it's really all about individuals who are willing to stand up. It's just that you get 100,000 individuals and it makes a big difference. So it's, you know, it's just building on each other's shoulders and building, um, you know, uh, accepting that responsibility and being willing to make a personal sacrifice. That's what this story is really about. And that's what the story, the Dan Ellsberg story was about. But it was really focused on one person. And this is focused on... A large group of people and but there's a through line with this love story of um, of uh, David Harris and his wife at the time Joan Baez who is a a legendary folk singer and um, sort of the whole uh, their their love story sort of mimics the movement they come together they meet in Santa Rita jail they marry they have a baby while he's in prison in federal prison for three years and um, then they break up after he gets out, as many people do after they're released from prison. So, and the movement sort of falls apart as when the, as the draft is ending. So um, their story is very much the story of this period too, as two activists who fall in love because of their commitment to the movement. And we, this film started with a reunion of 70 people who had been resistors during the war. And it's still, I'd say for, I'd say for all of them, still the most important and most joyful part of their lives. You know, that even though they ended up in prison, that they were so committed to what they were doing. They were so involved in this group that they were part of, that they still, they look back on it with such fondness and warmth and are still best friends. Many of them were, you know, still very close to each other from that period. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there, and, and I hadn't thought about the fact, you know, I mean, I don't think that you did have a draft here, but I don't think it was as onerous as the draft in the U.S. And um, the, you know, it really affected every young man of that period. And the story is also about the women who supported them, and they wouldn't have done what they did without the women who were behind them and who were really part of the story and running the the offices and you know, doing everything they could to make sure that they, the men felt supported by the women who were beside them and behind them and in front of them in many cases. So that, yeah. Uh, now, in Australia, people are called draft dodgers because they actually actively dodged going to prison. In America, the young men were resistors. And that's new to me too. They quite consciously were resisting. They weren't dodging. That's an important point. 
and I think that there there were a lot more people who were quote unquote draft dodgers, people who just you know hid in their grandmother's attic or or went to Canada or you know did a lot of things rather than than stand up and and resist publicly. This is a specific story of the people who people of conscience who are willing to accept the consequences of standing up and resisting publicly, which is a very small minority, although it's a big group. I mean, there were 40,000 people indicted and um, there were over 4,000 who went to prison. Um, so, well, you know, a lot of people resisted. They, we think that they're, you know, the numbers are probably, you know, not perfect, but 570,000 people seem to have, we can assume, resisted the draft in some way. Um, some, pub, most not publicly, but 100, probably 100,000 publicly. Also, it was a watershed moment for America because a lot of the people were saying that they weren't actually, they weren't anti-America, they were patriotic Americans. But yeah. the film is full of um, quotable quotes. So someone said, evil is a participative arrangement you know you have to participate for this evil to be to be perpetrated uh this is what it was about really it was about what americans believed was uh being american yeah and i think that they this was not that long after the after world war ii i mean it's you know almost two decades after but we're still i think this generation of young men grew up with fathers who had mostly been in the war or were certainly, uh, you know, profoundly affected by the war. Their families were, and they grew up thinking, well, I'll go out and fight a war like my dad did against the Nazis. And suddenly they're being asked to fight a war against these peasants. It's such an asymmetrical war. It's such a brutal war. And as you know, we say in the film, there was more armaments dropped on Vietnam than all of World War II. Um, in this tiny country. So, you know, it's it's not a war they were prepared to fight because of the nature of the war itself. And um, uh, and a lot of them were just pacifists who wouldn't have fought in any war. So um, that that's a smaller proportion of people. I think that's where the draft... I, I had made an earlier film about the pacifists who refused to fight in World War II, which was a very hard decision to make. Um, but in this war, it was a little more clear. It was a unethical and immoral and a brutal, savage war that they were being asked to fight. I guess uh, part of the strength of your film is not just the incredible uh, level of uh, footage and uh, the beautifully put together, but it it uh, parallels the uh, ordinary person's story with... Uh, hmm what the uh, powers that be thought. Like those uh, clips from, um, sound clips from Nixon and Kissinger were just, blew you away, really. You know, we've got to step up. You've got to get step up, says Nixon, you know. Don't be a pussy, really. (laughs) Use nuclear weapons. Don't be a pussy. Don't bomb, Henry. You know, I mean... I don't think any of us realized how bad it was. You know, they were very close to dropping nuclear bombs in, in North Vietnam and and or blowing up um, dikes, which would have killed hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and there were, you know, there was as Dan said, Dan Ellsberg appears in this film too because he's influenced by these folks, and he says, you know, uh, people don't know 
that every day the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted to make it an even more brutal war. And it was only the anti-war movement that stopped that. If there hadn't been that so many people out in the streets, you know, a million people on, at some point, that um, that they would have made it a worse war. And now we see, you know, it's no longer the longest war in American history. We've far outstripped that that um, <laughs> award with the wars that are going on in the Middle East now, and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. So these wars can go on a very, very long time. And as much as it felt like it was never going to end and the anti-war movement wasn't making a difference, and at moments it certainly did shorten the war. We know that now, that it significantly shortened the war and ended the draft permanently. So there has not been a draft in the U.S. since 1972. Uh, you feel you finish the film with a direct connection with Black Lives Matter and people's resistance in that. Uh, it's important, isn't it, for people to see a film like yours to see how it's done, really, or how it can be done. The really important thing was the business about peaceful demonstration. You put it in really good perspective for me. Well, we tried to compare the uh, leader in the Weather Underground, or we did compare um, Mark Rudd, who was one of the leaders of the Weather Underground, and David Harris. We had them in a long conversation about the difference between violence and nonviolence in the revolution or in the in the movement. And I, I think it was a really it was a very um, a revealing conversation they had and I, I think we've seen it you know just now with the with the looting that happened the first few days of the of these protests that that was stopped almost immediately by nonviolent activists who just put their bodies in front of people and said no no that's not how we're going to do this it's not going to get us anywhere and it seems like that's exactly what the message of this film was that the sexiness of the violent revolution was outstripped somehow by the compassion and the and the commitment of the nonviolent resistors who took a much harder road, but actually they succeeded because the police know how to deal with violence. They just you know beat everybody over the head and and it's over. But um, these guys made it impossible to do that, and because of their courage. And I think it's a great example for what's happening now. And we see it happening so much on the streets of the U.S. right now. It's quite exciting to see it happening again. Because mm -hmm. nonviolence is a lot harder. I mean, you know, when you see what, the, what the, the activists in the civil rights movement went through, how they were beaten over and over again, you know, and just kept coming back. And David tells this great story about this 70-year-old woman who gets beaten trying to and, and tortured with a cattle prod to try to vote in this town in the South where she lives. And she turns around and goes down the street and comes back and walks right back up the steps and says, I want to vote. You know, and just like nothing was turning these people around. They had so much courage and conviction. So that that's what inspires me about this story. And I'm glad that you um, find it inspiring too. That's wonderful. And I East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. Hello, welcome to another East Gippsland Dispatch. My name is Fiona. And today we're delving into the archives again for a little piece that I recorded a number of years ago 
for the fruit project. So in around 2012, 13 sort of time, um, the fruit project was getting artists in um, to do different installations and, and do their art around the theme of fruit in East Gippsland. And one of the artists they got was Chako Kato, who's a Japanese artist who does these really cool installations. And she did this quite amazing thing at the Cassilis Cemetery where she basically built a big spider web about six foot off the ground that extended for maybe 100 metres across the old Cassilis Cemetery and over the course of the time that she was there, different local people from around Swifts Creek and, and the other areas in that in that place just up um, just up north of Bansdale in East Gippsland came to watch her do her art and in and participate in knotting up this incredible installation. And I do have a recording of Charco, but what I'm gonna play to you today is a recording from one of the other Um, local East Gippsland artist from Swifts Creek. His name's John Butler and it's his um, interaction with that art and how he interpreted it and he also talks a little bit about the Cassilis Cemetery which um, was around during the Gold Rush era and now there's not very many visible headstones but there's a lot of um, a lot of people buried under the ground there. So without further ado we'll go into John Butler and listen to what he has to say and yeah I hope you enjoy it. We're in the Kessler Cemetery. Darko's done a wonderful project and it's got a a spiritual sense about it and uh, yeah just nice to see the uh, cordage floating in the wind and yeah and it, it just gives a, a, a different dimension yeah, it, it's a good place and I think Chaco was very impressed when she saw this area and thought that this is where she wanted to do her work all of those cords were just hanging loose in a bundle and I thought oh that's not very impressive um, and the next time I came Chaco was here and she'd actually fanned them out and made that connection with the soil which I thought was really great and uh, yeah, and it ties ties it all in. And so, when you heard about this fruit project, what what was the thing that sort of made you interested in it? Oh, just that I'm connected with the local art gallery, and and I was aware of it. That's. And know, so you're yeah. an artist, are you? Or oh, oh yeah, quirky, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do quirky things, yeah. Um, well, this is a pretty quirky thing. Sculpture. It is a pretty quirky thing, and I really like it. Um, over in the far corner, where where the where, where this sculpture converges yep. onto a tree, there that's that's an old apple tree which is well over a hundred years old. And over here is 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 the story tree, and uh, we get all the kids together and amuse them with stories and poems. So the kids would all sit in a circle around here and and uh, listen to stories and. Have a great time. I am Sir Brian, as bold as a lion. Collect the passing villages and kick them in the pond. I am Sir Brian, curse splash. I am Sir Brian, curse splash. I am Sir Brian, as as bold as a lion. Does anyone else want to wash? And over behind the line of trees is a... um, 
a Chinese section of the cemetery and there were quite a lot of Chinese working in this area during the gold rush. So I'm told there's about 30 Chinese graves there. There, there were 2,000 people living here in Castellus. Yeah, there's one there. So, yep, yeah, that would that would be the other end of this grave. We came last night under the, um, you know, full moon. Everybody was just into taking the photograph. It's okay, this side, you know. <laughs> Nothing like a graveyard at night time. <laughs> I know, it's really very, very unusual experience for them as well, but I think that was wonderful um, things to do, even for the people actually sleeping underneath. One um, participant, I mean, Lyndon, mum and dad, is, dad has a grave there. Yeah, she spent quite a long time to help knotting the dangles and she just felt really she said it was such a wonderful experience for her to spend be, to be able to spend time here and sharing the time I suppose with her mum and dad that's what I felt like um, while I'm doing you know netting it's a quite you know meditative type of um, activity so you start to wonder, you know, a lot of things. And I felt like I'm um, having a very good dialogue between, you know, people maybe underneath here or in, up in the heaven or whatever. It's a really great connection to me. Okay, so we heard the voices there of... Chako Kato, a Japanese artist who was talking about her installation that she did at the Castellus Cemetery. And also we heard from local Swifts Creek artist, John Butler. John was a sculptor and a poet who lived in Swifts Creek for many years. He was very involved in land care um, and he passed away a couple of years ago. They have a poet's walk in Swifts Creek, which consists of a walking track with six rock cans that he built. Um, each of those cans has a verse of his poem. And if you're interested in perhaps visiting the area and looking at the, um, the cans that John built and reading his poetry, you can go to the Great Alpine Gallery website and have a look at that. That's on the Great Alpine Road in Swifts Creek. Um, so, yeah, I recommend if you are travelling out of town um, and you're allowed to with the COVID restrictions, it's definitely worth the drive. Um, so, yeah, another example of how important art is um, in bringing people together, especially in isolated towns in East Gippsland. So that's all we have time for. Um, I look forward to um, speaking to you again soon. Goodbye. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when what a tragic couple of weeks for workers in the construction industry. If, if it wasn't bad enough last week, losing poor ex-Boral Supremo Mike Kane, the workers, 
awarded the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review Business Person of the Year three years ago for services to smashing the evil construction unions over that most heinous of crimes, a secondary boycott, now described in the same paper as disaster-prone and, and forced out. This week, it got worse. The man who played even handed a role in the Her Most Gracious Majesty smashed the evil union's royal commission, Dyson not hiding his intentions, had molested a number of women, according to a report commissioned by the Chief Justice. Imagine the pain and distress construction unions and their members must be feeling for poor Mike and poor Dyson. Dyson declared a great jurist, he really is, by no less an authority than the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, as he appointed him to the High Court, and lauded by former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, as he appointed him to smash the evil unions, in a neutral and even-handed way, which he carried out assiduously, or tried to carry out as best he could, stopping only for the odd break, like attending a caring business class party fundraiser, which didn't reflect any anti-evil union, anti-lazy, avaricious worker bias, because when challenged on the matter, Dyson himself ruled there was no bias, including no bias in ruling there was no bias. Case closed. Anyway, Dyson categorically denied any wrongdoing. Well, as a great jurist, he really is, on the bench for many years, he'd know they all say that. They would, wouldn't they, to coin a cliché, but if he caused any hurt or embarrassment, he apologised to the women. Interesting, he apologised for doing what he didn't do, or more correctly, for the women thinking he'd done what he didn't do. But he was very angry at the woman assigned to investigate and compile the report upon which the Chief Justice responded was not even a lawyer. He had no opportunity to cross-examine. Which is in itself also interesting, because remember how the tabloid media in particular had a field day during the con mission with allegation after allegation, screaming headlines day after day about how evil the evil unions were, accusations from respectable witnesses like caring employers. And in many cases, Dyson decided it would only delay proceedings, the inevitable, to allow them to be cross-examined particularly when, when cross-examined, it turned out the allegations were, were a touch exaggerated, to put it nicely, leading to, after all that, them leading to anyone being charged. Poor Tiny, poor Dyson, all that hard for nothing. Thus, Mike and now Dyson, two very, very distressful weeks for the evil unions. To show how evil they were, they are, they got a wage rise last week for the lowest of low-paid workers, a whopping one-point-something percent. Boy, will they be living it up. And they still complain that it wasn't enough. Greed knows no bounds. When the problem is not that it wasn't enough, but that it was one-point-something too much. Because the lowest of low-pay getting more low-pay, minuscule as it might be, is not good for the lowest of. This apparent contradiction is not a contradiction when explained by someone who, not like us, fully comprehends the delicate flower that is the economy. Who better than our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, whose only concern is the workers whom profits are able to employ, making increasing profits the big objective, but 
only for altruistic reasons, providing that work, and not through greed like the lowest of low paid. Well, Innes said, direct quote, minimum wage increases are not a particularly effective way of assisting the low paid. And here he franked his pro-worker sincerity by agreeing with former great socialist big supremo nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer Paul. The solution is the public purse. Use the public purse to assist the lowest of lower uh, and lower their taxes, for instance, and allow the caring employers to make more profit, which, as we now know, is all about their concern for workers. Let's hope the ACTU understands that when it meets with the caring business class government and the caring business class, a meeting taking place after we record this, thanks to COVID restrictions, but we'll report on that next week. COVID-19. Despite wild criticism of Brazilian big supremo Jair Bolsonaro over, among other things, his response to COVID-19, boasting the second biggest death rate behind his great idol, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, Bolsonaro is having the last laugh. He has adopted a policy acted to eradicate the disease. He has banned the appropriate authorities from reporting the numbers of cases and deaths. And thus, with a stroke of a pen, there are officially no new cases. Problem solved. Donald didn't go quite as far. He just ordered his lot to stop testing. The numbers were only high because they were testing, he pointed out, with impeccable logic. So successful, speaking of the last laugh, Donald was able to crack a few very funny jokes about the various names for COVID-19, all of which must have shocked his audience for their racism, meaning the loud cheering and applause may have been a nervous loud cheering and applause, but he got a good laugh out of the near-empty hall where he launched his campaign near empty where there should have been a million or more flooding into and outside the venue, Donald of the Overflow. Donald's got across the country and he don't know where we are. Confident like his supporters, there was no risk in taking no precautions at the rally. Maybe he really knew no one would turn up, but a promising start to ignore any precautions given that COVID is exploding in the area, though it's not a problem because one Donald supporter looking forward to the philosophical political gems, Keep America Great, said he wasn't even slightly worried about, well, he couldn't think of the name of the virus, but knew it wasn't a problem, putting him right up there as one of the US of's great minds, which is what we'd expect from a locked-on Donald supporter. And one young woman in her trample the poor beanie said not distancing and not taking any precautions and not wearing masks was, quote, what makes America so great? And there's about 130,000 fewer of them since not taking precautions made America so great. I say there should have been a million or more flooding into and overflowing, but they were too afraid to turn up because of a handful of Black Lives Matter protesters out the front. A terrifying threat, a lawless lot with no respect for Donald democracy and Donald free speech. Variation on a theme back here as Big Supremo scuttled them more last son urged us to push ahead with relaxing restrictions because that, he said, is part of living with COVID-19. In other words, lots of people have to catch COVID-19 for us to live with COVID-19, or in some cases, not live.
This highly moral philosophy was best expressed by a bloke called Sam Lovick, real name, a former chief economist with the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which, let's remind ourselves, might say Commonwealth, but was privatised many years ago for efficiency reasons, and is a big, 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 super-efficient capitalist corporation, who obviously saw the economy bit as more important than the Sarah bit. Sam conceded that opening up economies, an absolute essential necessary opening up, makes the world ripe for a second wave, but the cost of true blue Aussies move toward eradication is vast. Keeping the international border closed longer will make true blue Aussie a more isolated and less attractive place to do business. My work whatever that is, listener, but this is a man who knows what he's talking about. My work suggested that flattening the curb was the right way to go because the economic costs of elimination and the cost per life saved were vast. But it requires that we tolerate some deaths and manage infections through extensive testing and flexible, nuanced and highly targeted social distancing. So there, the economy demands we tolerate some deaths. Presumably, Sam doesn't see himself as one of the some. What laudable morals. Scuttle them and Sam might be right up there in Nobel Peace Prize considerations. Finally, back to the weeping and gnashing of teeth in union offices and on work sites will be even more pronounced with the news that the allegations have been referred to the... Uh, sorry, Commonwealth coppers, to investigate whether criminal charges should be laid against poor Dyson. Wonder how he feels about the daily headlines. And perhaps he could hear the case himself, sit with just a judge alone and rule he has no bias. Good morning. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, Politics with Your Wheaties. We finish off with a chat with Dr Noah Pasil, a uh, Solidarity Breakfast regular. I wanted his view of the issues brought up by the smashing of statues in response to the Black Lives Matter movement's call for truth-telling and change towards a just future. Black Lives Matter uh, rallies were very impressive and very important. And then there was a diversion. There was a a discussion about um, statues that uh, commemorate people who are basically slavers and exploiters and uh, uh, from the previous eras. And uh, uh, lots of people have said, oh, how outrageous that you should be pulling down statues. Of course, there was the major statue pulling down in um, in Bristol, in England. And I was really interested in the way uh, some, uh, what I'd call small fry whites, see these these uh, statues as either on one hand insignificant or part of an assault on their own history and i was really interested in what your opinion was about this i don't think there's any doubt that there's a small proportion of it may not be that small a proportion there's a probably a proportion of people 
in Australia and the US and the UK, the, the principal sites where we've had um, discussion about this. I think um, there's a small proportion that are vocally or very antagonistic to the idea of addressing past historical wrongs. And in fact, they may not even see them as historical wrongs um, at all. And then there's probably a proportion of people who actually think that um, the movements to address the past may not be wrong, but that uh, these people were acting in as best as they could in the times they lived. And, you know, to hold them up to the expectations or the measure that we have today is, um, is unreasonable. Uh, those people probably support those statues staying up. And then there's a proportion of people who probably have no investment in it at all. And then a, a proportion of people who actually think that the statues should come down. What the numbers are across the society in relation to um, where people, what people's views are, it's really hard to tell. But we can say that there is a proportion of people who believe, as you said, that these, the assault on these statues and the symbols and the naming of uh, places after people who had uh, made their wealth or their fame by in many cases, brutally exploiting uh, people who were colonized, enslaved, um, indentured. Uh, these people should, um, that the assault on those um, symbols is an assault on white, on their own identity. And I think there's no doubt that that's coming through at the moment and that there is a, a certain element in the political establishment that is trying to um, mobilize that group for their own gains and make, you know, opportunistically um, or ideologically um, uh, fellow travelers who are trying to make this a major political issue. Yeah, I, there's no doubt this is, in some ways, this is what happened in the aftermath of George Floyd's, um, I mean, you know, quite. Um, horrific death, um, murder at the hands of the police is that is similar, not that dissimilar to the Me Too moment a few years earlier. And we're seeing that um, there's a shift. I don't know how dramatic that shift will be long term, but, you know, for example, you're um, down your way. Um, I'm not going to use his name because I don't want to. Um, I, I don't. I don't want to give him greater fame than he already has. But there was a football commentator, a long-time football commentator, who lost his job because of comments, racist comments in recent weeks or recent days. You know, it would be well known in the news in Victoria, no doubt. Um, this is someone who's had a history of racially um, discriminating, making rude remarks, wearing blackface antagonizing um, Indigenous Australians without any penalty whatsoever. But in this current climate, those actions have cost him his job. And I think that, for me, is symbolic that there has been a shift. Um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore that altogether. That, that is, this is an important moment. Um, I'm not saying it's a long-term shift. It's a 
it's a permanent shift. But nonetheless, in this moment that we're sitting in now, um, the racism of two years ago, I cannot, uh, the, the, for example, the racism that was directed at Adam Goods around Australia in 2000, was it 15, 14 or 15 for that yeah. entire year? That is inconceivable in this moment. I think we have seen a shift. It was inconceivable thinking about it in retrospect that it happened at all. But in this moment right now, it is even more so. And I think I don't think we would see a repeat of that sort of behaviour being permitted in the way that it was only, what, three or four years ago. And I think that's significant. Yeah, well, there's been a very interesting and significant thing that's happened uh, since then, and that's the uh, fact that Lydia Thorpe has been made the uh, senator for Victoria for the Greens. She's the first Indigenous yeah. Sen uh, Victorian Legislative Council uh, member, but now she's the first Indigenous person to be a senator for the Greens uh, nationally. Uh, yeah. And that was done by ballot, ballot, which is really interesting. I think so. I mean, I, I do think we are in a historical moment. And I mean, this, yeah, your point, I guess, from the beginning is that as a result of this shift, the um, backlash, I don't like to use the term white lash um, in the way that some people do. I think it's a little bit unsophisticated. Um, I'm not saying it's not a term we should use, but... Um, but there is a backlash against this. There is a reaction to it by conservatives that we shouldn't ignore as well. It also poses a very dangerous moment um, in terms of how the uh, certain reactionary forces will possibly uh, mobilise around this issue and galvanise a particular uh, electorate or voter base, discontented, alienated, feeling pressured by long-term impacts of neoliberalism um, and capitalist um, exploitation, and in more recently by the additional burden of uh, COVID-19. I think this is a dangerous moment uh, in, in many ways because of that and the, the tendency towards polarisation on left and right, even though those, those terms are far more complicated than they once were, um, but this sort of progressives and reactionary um, polarisation, I think, is more intense and becoming more intense than it ever has been. And that, I think, is something not just happening in Australia, but, you know, we're seeing certainly it's happening It's happening in the US, um, it's happening in the UK, and political elites, I think, are um, in this moment where they're making a decision about whether their own personal economic interests uh, supersede some of their philosophical, ideological ones around things like racism and gay marriage and whatever um, sort of progressive social policies they might have. And that's, I think, is uh, in, because I know, you know, many of the political elites that run businesses, fund managers um, and so forth who um, invest in political parties and attempt to own the political system, many of them are not, you know, hostile to non-whites, or to uh, progressive sexuality or whatever it might be, gender issues, um, abortion, etc. But if their economic interests align with people whose positions are antagonistic to those things, it could potentially 
be quite a uh, reactionary alliance of um, social, uh, of economic elites and um, and political right wingers. And that's, I think, you know, the sort of danger, dangerous territory we might be heading towards. Well, it's kind of like the um, obverse to the push that is represented by those people that pushed over that statue in Bristol. The, um, the it's, yeah. it's understood that um, racism and sexism go march hand in hand with capitalism because it's a tool of division. Um, and it yeah. reminds me of something. Uh, there was an entertainer, a popular entertainer, a rapper, an English rapper, who was uh, offered a. Um, it was about a, about two years ago. He was offered a uh, accolade from the Queen, and he just pushed it back and said, "I don't want to touch anything that's uh, got the blood of the um, Empire on it." And it uh, struck me as being. Um, very interesting because it's a very clear analysis of uh, uh, of a political stance. Uh, you know that there are, are people are, con- are increasingly becoming more sophisticated on one hand in their political analysis, and on the other hand, becoming more simple, therefore taking refuge in religion. That's yeah. how I kind of see it. Yeah, yeah. There is definitely a polarization. There's a real. Uh, people are sitting further and further on the spectrum, further apart on the spectrum, um, and a whole range of things. And, and I think the Black Lives Matter uh, moment, movement, and I hope it's more than a moment, movement, um, is you know, indicating how uh, there's a large proportion of people in a lot of countries that understand the history of colonialism and understand also that the legacies of it are something that we have to address. I mean, you know, there's the the argument that a, a statue provides an educative moment of um, the oppressiveness of colonialism is, a, I think, a really tenuous argument. Um, you know, having, uh, um, having a statue of um, a slaver or, a, a, you know, here in Australia, someone who... Um, was responsible for the murder of indigenous people, the dispossession, the murder of indigenous people, is educative in the sense that it celebrates the life of people who have made their fortune and their wealth, uh, sorry, their fortune and their fame from uh, these from committing atrocities. That's the educative educative element of it. That it that it it, do, it doesn't matter what the plaque says. What it it says subconsciously and consciously in some respects is that um, people who commit horrendous crimes are celebrated as 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 historically important people. Yeah, yeah, it's quite um, clear. I mean, the it, idea that it, it uh, you clear. don't yeah that you put a statue up equals valorization of that individual. One person did say to mind having a statue like that as long as they write out exactly what it is that they've done. Yeah. Yes. Then people have made that argument, but I mean, you know, if someone said, "Oh, well, let's have a picture of his uh, statue of Adolf Hitler in the central center of Berlin, and yeah. we put a plaque to describe his atrocities, so we can educate people uh-huh. around the um, horrors of Nazism," people wouldn't buy that argument for a second. No. But you know, and and Hitler was. You know, uh, his crimes were heinous, so there's no doubt about that. 
But Leopold II, who was responsible for colonising the what is today Democratic Republic of Congo and the death and um, devastation of over 20 million people and a huge part of the African continent, um, has statues I know. to him and a whole range of places named after him. He's disgraceful. The crimes that Leopold committed are... Um, uh, uh, parallel those that of Hitler. Yeah, I know. People do. I mean, I, I saw I saw a program that uh, told us that in in uh, Belgium they have this sweet with uh, chocolate ears, and it, and the chocolate ears yeah. were when when they went, people gained bounty by killing in uh, the people of the Congo, and they proved that they killed them by presenting their ears. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is the legacy. This is the history of colonialism in Africa, and people talk about benign colonialism, um, how Europeans lifted Africa out of savagery. The savagery in Africa was the savagery of colonialism in the, on that continent, and the fact that we still celebrate that um, globally, whether it's statues of Cecil Rhodes or the Rhodes Scholarship, or Leopold II or Bismarck or whoever, whomever it might be, just demonstrates how white history is rewritten or written in such a way to ignore that, so that it ignores the long history of savagery and brutality um, in um, non-European parts of the world. I mean, it, it, for me, it, you know, someone who studied this, written about it. Um, and read a lot about those atrocities, it is actually sickening and, I have to say, um, mind-blowing that we still are unable to come to terms with that. And Australia is just as bad. I mean, when you read any of the histories of the atrocities committed on Indigenous people here and the attitudes towards Indigenous people, the, uh, the sort of lack of dignity and the respect, hor horrific... Um, yeah, I mean it's unspeakable that, in, and the fact that we're that there are some people who either are willing to ignore it. Um, I hope Tony Abbott's listening, um, or deny that it even happened. Um, you know, and there are people like, uh, you know, there are many um, notable people in Australia who even deny. Oh, well, the dolt that, that we've got happened. as the prime minister. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I, you know, this this for me is in, really indicative of how we have to go about the educative process. And it's not through rewriting uh, plaques on symbols, uh, on statues, or there's a much deeper and longer process of education that has to go, or re-education that has to occur. And that it includes tearing down those statues and renaming things and telling the history in exactly the way it should be told. Yeah, Lydia Thorpe calls it truth-telling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... You know, you, there's no way you could write a plaque on a statue that could, I think, evoke um, accurately the horrors of colonialism. Um, and what sort of statue would you have? Would you, you know, have people hanging from, uh, you know, trees and being burnt alive by um, or shot um, in cold blood by these people that are being celebrated? I, you know, it just... Yeah, me, it really it's pretty tough. Just, uh, it's a distraction. 
Yeah, yeah, it's pretty tough. In fact, uh, the most uh, harrowing of films, The Nightingale, came out last year, and I'll have to say that was the first film I've seen that even approaches dealing with these issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, and, and people are, people resent those histories. A lot of white people resent those histories being told and feel that somehow they're being um, judged in that moment. And I don't understand that. I mean, you know, I, I, none of us are judging the contemporary contemporary people on the basis of the horrific actions of people that came before. Um, what we are judging people today on is the fact that they're unwilling to, to recognise and admit um, that uh, these atrocities happened and to try to come to terms with it um, and, and to, you know, treat Indigenous people with a with the respect and dignity that comes from understanding that horrific history. Um, and for me, that's really the, the measure. I mean, I had students, I, would, I, I used to teach a course in African um, history. I'd have students walk out of lectures or tutorials when I would talk about the atrocities in the Belgian Congo. Um, and not because they were being, um, you know, not because they were em emotionally... Um, uh, sort of uh, distraught, they were they were resentful, they were angry that I would tell that history, and I you know I would get um, complaints about it. But that is the, the you know it's well documented. There's a huge amount of evidence. We have the photos, the the reports. I mean, the Belgians documented every atrocity basically they committed in that part of the world. This is some fabrication. They were thorough. They're very thorough. I mean. Yeah, um, and so you know, this is that the the fact that that happens today, about a hundred years after the event, and that people are unwilling to stand up and say, "Well, this is a terrible thing that happened. We should never let it happen again. We should never forget that it happened." Um, and in the process, we understand the issues and the problems, the difficulties that are faced in the Democratic Republic of the Congo as a result of this history, that is, we now have an appreciation of the um, impact of that history on this part of the world. People resent it. They get angry that the history is being told. Um, they complain about it. Um, and they come out with a whole range of uh, personal or racist attacks on people who try to tell those histories. And, you know, this is what we face today. And that's why the Black Lives Matter is so important, movement is so important, because it's an attempt to, to educate more people properly about that long history of suffering um, that uh, people from the non-European parts of the world suffered as a, as a result of colonialism. It's interesting too that um, uh, Churchill is uh, has a very spotty history and he was obviously a bit of a sociopath really. Um, but his quote, the, the, the quote is that I'm not going to apologise uh, basically for some, you know, uh, for white people being more, um, uh, uh, you know, a better calibre 
a race of people over someone else, you know, I, you know, like I'm not going to apologise about, you know, coming to Australia and white people knocking off the Aboriginal people or uh, going, the Americans, the, the Europeans going to America and, and uh, disseminating uh, the uh, local populations because they were a superior race of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said, the racism and capitalism and sexism are uh, co-joined. Um, and uh, Eric Williams wrote um, a long time ago about slavery and capitalism and said that it wasn't, uh, uh, that Africans weren't enslaved because they were black, they became black because they were enslaved. And that is because the plantation economies and the mining economies of the new American colonies required free exploited labor, um, and that labor was available in Africa, uh, Africans became slaves. And then once they became slaves, an ideology of white supremacism and black inferiority was constructed to legitimate that, that horrific practice. And colonialism, white supremacism are a direct um, descendant of that process and they're still co-joined today that is if you look around the world um, women are paid less their labor is free um, often um, unaccounted for or hidden um, and black people you know people of non-european um, uh, backgrounds are also often underpaid, exploited, enslaved. Uh, capitalism is still responsible for the huge inequalities of gender and race in the 21st century, just as it was in the 19th, 18th, 17th centuries. Um, and that's something that we must never forget as we try to reshape the world into one that is post-racist and post-sexist, that it requires a fundamental um, and profound shift in the way that we think about our relationships to each other economically. That's a wrap for this morning. The upsurge in COVID cases tells us we all need to be careful. So look after yourself and those close to you. Talk next week. We'll go out with a Ben Harper number. I've been finding listening to music a real balm lately. Take care. You say what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine too. Now you've got more than you can spend. But all of the money in the whole wide world is not gonna help you in the end. Now while there's still time to be saved, don't take that attitude to your grave. Might be too late for you, I'm afraid So don't take that attitude to your grave Don't you take it there I hear helicopters over my house every day Shining their lights and flying low Treat a child like a criminal from the day that he is born just what you saw Now while there's still time to be saved Don't 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.